when we go out into cold temperatures, our body releases these things called cold shock proteins. And when they get released, they actually help mitigate the effects of inflammation and we can actually feel better. So not only when you go outside and start running in this cold weather, you're not just going to feel better, but you're going to also increase your immunity by decreasing your inflammation. This is Sweat the Details, a collaboration with Under Armour and iHeartRadio, a sports and training podcast made for women by women. I'm Monica Jones, a fitness coach, boxer, business owner, and UA athlete. And I'm Meg Boggs. I'm a powerlifter, author, body positivity advocate, and mother. Every episode, Monica and I will talk to athletes, trainers, and experts and learn more about how the body and mind work together in training and competition. FitFam, get ready for a truly enlightening episode because our guest is a neuroscientist named Luisa Nicola. Luisa specializes in the neuroscience of athletic performance and has worked with NBA, NFL, and MLS players alike. It's a lot of letters, but they are elite. She's also the host of the podcast, The Neuro Experience, where she discusses brain health, neuroscience, and athletics. And on top of all this, Louisa is also a former triathlete who's raced for Australia at some of the highest levels of competition, including the 2011 Beijing and 2012 Auckland Triathlon World Championships. So not only is she a brilliant neuroscientist, she also has the experience of being a top athlete. Yes, Louisa is goals. So where do we begin? What do you even ask a neuroscientist? Well, one of Luisa's areas of expertise is the impacts of cold temperatures on the training experience. Now, I'm no stranger to training in cold weather, but Meg, being in the South, how do you feel about the cold? Does it get really cold where you are? Girl, no. (laughs) It definitely doesn't get very cold down here. I mean, cold to me is like in the 50s and 60s. That's like freezing temps for me. So anything below that, mm mm-mm. I am someone who, if I'm going to be working out in the cold, I probably am going to be struggling because I'm not used to it. I haven't really prepared for it. So I'm just like, let's talk about the cold and how I can do a better job of training in it. Because I know there's got to be benefits to it, right? I just cannot. I can't. I'm just not. I'm not (laughs) not built for it. Actually, I trained for a half marathon some years ago, back when I was primarily a runner, and I was outside in shorts. But once I got to be an individual athlete, I avoided the outdoors, but you do feel great after. So I'm really interested to know the true effects going into that cold training, going into that cold recovery and seeing what the difference is. Exactly. So before we get to the interview, I want to take a quick second to share an important vocab term with our listeners that can help them as they listen to Louisa share all of her knowledge. Yes. We want to break down a term you'll hear Louisa use a few times throughout the interview, and that's HRV. HRV stands for heart rate variability. And while Meg and I could totally do a great job explaining what it is and what it tells experts about our body performance, we're going to let Louisa explain it. So heart rate variability is the measure of your beat to beat of your heartbeat. So it's measured. So if you're wearing a whoop watch or an aura ring, your HRV is actually measured during deep sleep. So I think uh, to be exact, it takes uh, it takes your HRV over a four-minute period. So it basically can tell you how ready your body is for the following day. Now, 
For those of you who think, well, I've got a low HRV or I've got a high HRV, it's very individualized. So the higher it is, it's suggestive of the more healthier you are, the more recovered you are, the better you're going to be able to perform. So if you wake up and you're in the green zone, for example, that's where your HRV is almost at its maximum or is at its maximum, you know that that day you can put in maximum effort into your mental work, whether that's at work or into your training. When your HRV is low, it could suggest that, hey, you're under-recovered, you may be getting sick, or you're just not going to perform that well because you've got a low HRV. Some of the things that kick you out of a high HRV is alcohol. You know, I'm not a very big drinker, but if I have a glass of wine, my HRV the next day reads as if like I'm dying. It's so, so low. So what I know for sure is that stress and alcohol and poor sleep are contributing factors to a low HRV. I think that was a good call, Mon. But what do you say we get our questions on training in the cold answered by neuroscientist Louisa Nicola? Yes, bring on the neuroscience. Let's go. All right, we've got an exciting day on Sweat the Details, y'all. We're so excited to have Luisa Nicola on the show. She is a neuroscientist, and she specializes in athletic performance, working with athletes in the NBA, NFL, and MLS. She's also host of a podcast, The Neural Experience, which discusses brain health, neuroscience, longevity, and athletics. Welcome, Luisa. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be on here to talk to you both. This is, uh, this is really exciting. We're so excited to have you. Uh, I'm really excited to dive into this because I know we're going to talk about training and different temperatures and how that can change our performance. What does your job as a neuroscientist in sports actually entail? That's a great question. So I first came from a medical background. So I was working in neurophysiology, actually. So if you've ever seen those caps, you know, that they put on you and they've got all these leads and they're coming from your brain and they're kind of, you know, looking at the electrical pathways in your brain, that's where I come from. So it wasn't until around 2015 that I thought, why are we not doing this on athletes? So uh, around 2015, I was in Australia. That's where I was born and raised. I decided to go and do a study on athletes where I wanted to measure what was happening in their brain. We usually do this in a medical setting with epilepsy patients. I thought, imagine if we could find out what's happening in the brain of an athlete. That's how I got into working with elite athletes. And it's just marvelous. Mm -hmm. The things that we don't know yet about the brain and how the brain really controls absolutely everything we do from the way we think to the way we move to how fast our brain processes the gun that goes off for you to start at the start line of a, a race. It's absolutely incredible. So my company, NeuroAthletics, when we actually go and work with athletes, we go in, we do a full-on assessment. We look at their brains, we do a brain scan, we find out what areas are they deficient in, and then we put together protocols to really correct those to make them be able to think better and perform faster. Wow, that's so interesting. <laughs> that has to probably do with every aspect of everything, every part of your life. Mm. Can you just tell us about like your current uh, research? What are you working on right now? So I'm doing sleep studies with athletes, especially runners. Um, I'm doing a number of different brain optimization studies. And another thing I'm using is cold thermogenesis, which we'll get into later on too. 
This is going to be, I mean, I'm going to have excited. to respect your time. I know. <laughs> I'm so curious. You know, you yourself were an elite triathlete before you became a neuroscientist. Yeah. Can you tell us about your journey into fitness and how was your experience competing at a professional level? So that was quite, you know, I always say if I knew back then what I know now, I'd probably be a much better triathlete. So as we know, triathlon is, I call it a four sport uh, series. It's, you know, swim, bike, run, and transition. So you have to become the best in all of those three things. And it takes so much energy. It takes so much time. I was training five hours a day. I don't really agree with that now, just given what I know about science and the body. Um, but back then, gosh, I think that's where I really learned what it takes to be an athlete from the mental side, from waking up, training in the cold weather, going out into the freezing cold, no matter if it was hailing, oh, you know, wow. we'd have to get on the bike. We never missed a session. Back when I was competing, I finished in 2012. It was all about, okay, just sleep six hours because you've got to get up at five in the morning. You know, you've still got to, I still had to go to university. I had to do so much. And just given the amount of like training we were doing, I don't think that, that would serve me today if I was a triathlete. Right. What made you decide to start studying neuroscience? Like where did, where did that passion come from? So it came from sports. So I always, you know, I started off, um, I went into a sports science degree as my undergrad, and then I actually moved into a master's of mathematics. I really loved math. And it was during that time that I was introduced to algorithms within a neuroscience setting. Wow. So I was put together with a director of a lab who was working on action potentials and looking at the ways that our brain fires. So we've in our brain, we've got neurons, they're nerve cells or brain cells. And the way that they communicate with each other is via this thing called a synapse. So when we have a thought, when we produce an action, we have a synapse and that all together produces our actions. Okay. So he was looking at the algorithms to which they fire. And it's when I first got to see a brain and I thought, oh, this is absolutely beautiful. I want to dedicate my life to it. So I started working. I went and studied medicine and then I went into neurophysiology. And that's when I found out that, oh, there's a lot of overlaps between what's happening in sport and what's happening with the brain. And it was very underlooked. We weren't really looking at the brain 10 years ago in a sports setting. So let's take the NFL, for example. We know with the NFL, one of the biggest things that happens in the NFL is a concussion. And the NFL has a concussion protocol. But what they weren't really looking at two, three years ago was the fact that when you scan the brains of Alzheimer's disease patients, you can see a very clear correlation between Alzheimer's disease and the concussion state. So that's when I started to think, oh, there's a big overlap here. This is really beautiful. I want to keep exploring this. I want to keep exploring how the brain intersects with sport. You are an absolute hero. <laughs> so can you tell us why it's important for athletes to take into consideration their neurology in their training? We talked about the concussions and how that correlates, but you know, why else is it important to consider neurology and training? So I'll break it down for you in a, in a really easy way. So you and I possess something really beautiful. Every human does. It's called the nervous system. And that is our brain, our spinal cord. And then we have this other thing called the peripheral nervous system. So this is all of those things that come off the spine and they connect. Okay. Mm. And it's a really beautiful thing because when you really understand it, you know that it governs everything we do. So let's say, for example, we want to increase or we, we want to increase muscle size or we want to have a, a better 
immune system or we want to be able to uh, run faster. A lot of the times, what do we know about sport? We know that, okay, I have to meet this time. I have to go to track. I have to train this way. We're hardly ever looking at the neurology, okay? Right. Now, our neurology dictates everything. Our brains, as an athlete, especially as an endurance athlete, you need to be able to have not just physical endurance, you need to have mental endurance, brain endurance. What is that? Well, that comes from your brain being able to use so much energy and not fatigue quick. So what do we need to know about that? Well, we need to know how to hydrate correctly, right? It's not Mm -hmm. just about water. Your brain is actually made up of electrolytes. Your nerve cells cannot physically work if you don't have the correct balance of electrolytes. That's another reason why neurology is really important. This is so fascinating. Oh my goodness. You work with a lot of elite athletes in the NFL, NBA, and MLS. Mm. Could you tell us about the work that you're doing with them? What are some of the issues that they have that they come to you with and Mm. how are you helping them? Yeah. So there's this really big phenomenon called brain fog. And so one of the major complaints, it's a chief complaint, I would say, from a lot of my athletes is, you know what? My thinking when I wake up is clouded. You know, I get up and I'm a bit groggy. And you've probably felt that, right? Have you ever felt you when you wake up? Absolutely. One of the biggest biomarkers to elite athletic performance is an athlete's ability to think fast. And in order to be able to really have those clear thinking patterns, we need to really take into consideration things such as what we're eating, how we're sleeping, how we're hydrating. So when an athlete comes to me and says, Louisa, I don't know what's going on. I feel like I'm sleeping good. I feel like I'm eating good, but I just wake up and my brain's all foggy. Well, obviously we do a brain assessment with them. We do a questionnaire. We actually have a sleep questionnaire. It's made up of over a hundred questions. And then a really great part of all of this process during the neuroathletic method is we put our protocols into place. So we do full on sleep studies with our NBA players. So all of our athletes are equipped with a thermal regulation mattress. So then I can actually say to them, this is the temperature you should be sleeping at. We have them, you know, set up to, you know, a a whoop, band or an aura ring. And I'm able to track that on the back end and look at their HRV and figure out, oh, your HRV is down. And that's going to be a predictor of poor performance. So I don't want you training today, or I don't want you going and doing, you know, a hundred jump shots. I just want you to take it easy. Things like that. It's very scientific. That kind of support means the world. I think it really reinforces our understanding of, oh, I'm not crazy. I'm not waking up feeling this way for no reason. And yeah. I really love my whoop. I love fitness tracking my recovery more than anything else and how I strain my body. Yes. Yeah, so many things just underlie that. So important. Facts. I feel like this sounds all very familiar and I needed this talk right now. <laughs> so of course, you know, when we train, we aren't training in a vacuum. We're training in an environment that has certain characteristics like a specific humidity or a temperature, et cetera. So what are some ways that environmental conditions affect the body while doing physical exercise? So environmental conditions affect us in all different ways. So one specific example is we're moving into winter. If you're in a, you know, if you're in America, we're soon about to get smacked with winter. I say that because I feel like New York City, especially, we've only got two seasons and it's summer and winter. Um, so I'm like, okay, I'm already preparing for it. Um, but I really like training in the winter. Because the cold gives you so many 
benefits. So I'm going to start off with cold and some of the you know benefits that training in cold can do. One of the most robust benefits of training in cold is this a massive release of norepinephrine. So you guys have probably heard of adrenaline. Mm -hmm. So adrenaline and norepinephrine are the same things. Adrenaline is just secreted in the body. Norepinephrine is secreted in the brain from an area called the locus ceruleus. Now, norepinephrine in the brain acts as two things. It acts as a hormone and a neurotransmitter. So when you go out into the cold and you are exposed to cold weather, you get this increased release of norepinephrine. And norepinephrine is involved in focus, vigilance, and attention. So you have an increase in these three things as a neurotransmitter when you're in the cold. Okay, so that's the first thing. As a hormone, a hormone is released in the bloodstream. Norepinephrine also acts as a hormone. Wow. And it does so many different things as a hormone. So we can already see that when we go out into the cold, that just the release and all the benefits that we get comes from norepinephrine. Interesting. There was a study done that showed that when you go out into cold temperatures, they did a group of athletes, male endurance runners, when they were training in 16 degree Celsius weather for six hours, you know, just at a moderate pace, just walking around for six hours in cold temperature, mm -hmm. they increased their norepinephrine by 260%. What? So that is huge. But then they thought, well, everyday people aren't probably going to be outside running for six hours. So then they redid the study and they put these athletes in 4.4 degree Celsius weather, which is pretty cold. Um, and all that they did was put them in there for 20 seconds and it increased their norepinephrine by 200 to 300%. <gasps> so that is so huge. 4.4 degree weather, you know, you can mimic that by going into a cryotherapy chamber. But I mean, just going out into the cold weather here during winter in New York City is pretty much the same thing, right? So that's a really great thing of training in the cold temperature. That is so cool. The next thing that I wanted to talk about was when you go into cold ambient temperature, and, and I'm talking about not cold immersing yourself into a bath. I'm talking about when you just go outside and you go for a run, we also get an increase in another molecule hormone called dopamine. And I'm sure we've all heard of dopamine. Yes. yes. It is that goal orientated drug, if you will. It's that molecule of that tells your brain and tells your body that you've achieved something great and you want to strive for more. So it's that motivation molecule, I call it. So whenever anybody is lacking a bit of motivation and they're thinking, oh, I don't want to go out. I don't want to put my sweats on and go out in the cold. It's too cold out there. I tell you, if you can just get past that moment of that, that tiny five seconds of self-doubt, if you just shut that off and get outside, all your worries will go away because you'll get that increase in dopamine, increase in norepinephrine, which those two molecules alone work really well together. You'll be able to go through your run with ease. Wow. That is so enlightening because now I'm almost wishing it was cold outside so I could achieve some deeper results. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us, you know, we, we talked about dopamine and we talked about norepinephrine. What else happens to the body when athletes train in cold conditions? It goes from brain production and then how about the rest of the body and the nervous system? Well, another good thing that training in cold does, or let's just say immersing yourself in cold ambient temperature, is we have this dramatic decrease 
in inflammation. So inflammation, I call it the um, the Goldilocks theory because too much of it is bad, not enough of it is also bad. So you want that kind of sweet spot. And I think there's a lot of misinformation in the world where people are like, I don't want, I don't want too much inflammation, but inflammation is good. It's, it's there to serve. Like we get these rush of cytokines to, you know, help us build and repair and adapt. Now, too much of it obviously is bad. So when we go out into cold temperatures, our body releases these things called cold shock proteins. And when they get released, they actually help mitigate the effects of inflammation and we can actually feel better. So not only when you go outside and start running in this cold weather, you're not just going to feel better, but you're going to also increase your immunity by decreasing your inflammation. So that's one thing. Another thing I wanted to point out is this thing called mitochondrial biogenesis. So what is that? Yeah. We have cells, okay? And you've probably heard of the mitochondria. Mitochondria is those batteries within our cells. We call them that powerhouse within our cells that gives us our energy. Mitochondrial biogenesis means the formation of new mitochondria. How does this happen? This happens in response to stress. So it's an adaptive thing that we've all had throughout our lives. So when we experience a bit of stress, once we, you know, overcome that stress, we produce new mitochondria because our mitochondria is kind of fighting, saying, I'm going to grow and I'm going to be a bit more powerful and, and have more energy next time this stress comes around. When we go into a state of shock, when we cool our core body temperature down, our body has to fight to keep us warm. So as it's fighting, to get to that, that homeostatic standpoint, it's creating new mitochondria so it can fight back. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. It's our powerhouse of our bodies. That is so cool. So what is the key to maximizing athletic performance in cold environments? Really great thing to maximize your performance and taking the cold into consideration is once you get outside, go outside with layers on. You know, we call this under armor for a reason. Um, you know, it's the armor underneath your clothes. You want to go outside. You want to go out. You want to warm up in the cold temperature and start to take layers off as your body, you know, gets warmer and warmer as you start to get, you know, into your training. I think I've named so many benefits. Okay. But everything comes with caution. You know, one thing that happens in the cold is we get vasoconstriction. So when we get really cold, our vessels, they narrow and they they constrict, okay? So that's that's one of the good things. But if we don't keep moving and warming up, they'll just keep stiff. So we're going to get more prone to injuries. So I would say if you are going to go outside and train in the winter, especially in cold weather such as New York City, you really want to make sure that you're maintaining that thermal control. You want to make sure that you're training at a speed that is going to be increasing your internal core temperature so you don't get injured, so you don't get sick. So definitely rise to the occasion of your training in the cold to prevent that. Do you have any other watchouts people should be aware of when they're training in the cold? So in terms of injury prevention, you always want to really thoroughly warm up as you're going outside. You also really want to protect your airways because when you go outside and you're, you know, you're breathing in that cold air, it can obviously 
get to you. So, you know, and you know, depending on some of the medical conditions that people have, obviously taking all of that into consideration. Um, I would just say that having a thorough warm up, having the best type of clothing on board and making sure that you've got something as in you want to go outside and you don't want to muck around, you know, like right now the weather's really beautiful. Maybe I'll walk to the gym or maybe I'll walk to the track and do my main set there and then maybe walk home. That probably wouldn't work for me in freezing temperatures because on the way home, I'd probably become hypothermic. Very true. Is there a too cold then? Is there a too cold that exists? Well, yes, there are limitations to cold weather. One thing that I forgot to point out is I think a really interesting consideration and apparel to be wearing during cold temperatures is protecting your hands, okay, protecting your head and protecting your feet. The reason being is because if you want to dramatically cool somebody down, if you go into an ICU and you think, oh gosh, their temperature is so raised, I want to cool them down. The best way to cool somebody down is where the largest surface area exists in your body. And that is on the palms of your hands, the bottoms of your feet, and actually back of your neck and your stomach. So if that's where I'm going to cool somebody down, we want to make sure that those areas are really protected in these cold weathers. So if you really want to take extra precaution in really, really, really cold weather, you want to go outside and wear those things to protect yourself. That is an incredible segue into more actionable items that our listeners can take away into how to maximize their performance in those cold environments. It seems that cold is such a recurring beneficial just temperature to train in and to recover in. So I see a lot of athletes use ice mm. baths after intense performance. What is the impact in the cold temperatures on recovery? Well, here's the thing. You actually, there's a very known phenomenon called the hormetic response. So that is how your body adapts to something that you've done. So let's just say somebody has gone and they've exercised really intensely and then they're going to go and take a cold shower or a cold bath. Now, we touched on earlier that when you go out into the cold or when you immerse yourself in cold water, you dramatically decrease inflammation. So it's actually been proven and shown by scientists that if you go into a cold bath within a two-hour time frame after exercise, you're blocking the hormetic response. And this study was done on athletes uh, doing hypertrophy training on their quads. So they actually blocked the response. So you're actually taking away all the training benefits by taking a cold bath immediately after training. So I would suggest you know, nobody do that. If you want to really maximize on the benefits of training, you want to try and have that window, the two hour window post exercise or post training, but you do want to adopt a cold thermogenesis practice. And that could be getting into a cold bath three or four times a week and staying in there for a minimum, depending on the temperature of the, of the water, you want to try and get in there and, uh, for a minimum of 12 minutes. I think that seems to be the sweet spot and obviously get out and do that for, you know, four or five times a week just to keep with that Ooh. consistency. So what about, um, hot temperatures, like on the opposite end, can they, can that contribute to recovery as well? Oh yeah. So I actually love, um, I love the area of hot temperatures because I mentioned earlier this protein called cold shock proteins. So we also have heat shock proteins and they are released in, 
ambient temperatures that are very hot. So for example, if you go into a sauna um, or a steam room or you know even an infrared sauna, all of the saunas, if you want to go, if you go in there, your body starts to release heat shock proteins. And there's been so much research in that area to show how beneficial the hot weather is. One clear example is, and you guys are going to love this, well, I love it, is it mimics cardiovascular mm. exercise. So you can get the same effects, okay, from doing a 20-minute sauna session as you would by doing a one-hour run. And I love this because that's like, oh, great, instead of running, I'll just go in and and do the sauna (laughs) session. First thing I think. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So there's so many different effects. And my father, for example, I, I got him a sauna to go in and do these because he had a stroke two years ago and some of his limbs are just not all there. And instead of, you know, I want him to keep getting the benefits of the cardiovascular fitness. So I got him a sauna, but it plays really well for anybody who's going through an injury, Achilles injury, and you really want to be able to rest that, then you can get into the sauna and have the same effects. That is incredible. And I'm really loving how you are presenting not only the benefits to elite athletes, to endurance runners, but also to those who are elderly or those who may have gone through, you know, any, anything from a stroke to an injury on your website, you describe yourself as a neurohacker. And clearly this is, you know, neurohacking for many different demographics and types of people. Can you tell us more about what that means? Yeah. So look, I, um, the word hack is a, is a word that I've been using for a long time. And it's basically, how can we go in and get the most beneficial effects from certain protocols? So when I say hack the system, okay, like a coder is going to go and hack a website. I think, how can we go and hack our body? This world of human optimization is growing. We're now becoming more aware of different scientific protocols to enhance our longevity, to enhance our thinking and our brain performance. And when I say neurohacker, it's like mainly saying, how can I have a better performing brain by doing different things? And some of the things that I've experimented on is obviously cold immersion. In terms of nutrition, I've worked with a number of different brands and a number of different companies to see what are supplements, what are nootropics, how can certain things in our diets have a beneficial effect on our brain? And I've come to many conclusions from my own experience in that field and also things that are deep rooted in the literature. So that's amazing. And just figuring out anything that science suggests that we can do to better our performance from a neurological perspective. That's how I would consider uh, brain hacking or neurohacking. That's so interesting. So if, if you're wanting to, you know, take that first step to hacking, you know, your own mind, like you did, what is that first step someone should take to hack their own mind? Step number one is perfecting your sleep. Having good sleep hygiene is by far the most single, most important thing that you can do for your brain, your body, and your longevity. So increasing your lifespan, that's the first thing. The second thing is you want to look at your nutrition. Nutrition plays a huge role in how we think, how we act, how we perform, how our body is recovering. Things such as refined sugars, we know, obviously, that they're not good for us, they're not good for our waistline, but they also have detrimental effects on inflammatory biomarkers in your brain and in your body. So if you're waking up feeling a bit groggy, you want to look at, did I have sugar? Did I have things that are just not in line with you know, having a clear thinking mind? And then the third thing that I would suggest is 
It's interesting to me when people tell me that they don't go and get regular blood work. And here's why. You can't possibly know what's happening in your blood without getting a blood test. Getting a, a regular blood test and checking on you know, a few things that can help you with your performance is probably going to be key and paramount to training. One thing that I really don't like um, is when coaches put together protocols that are not based on the individual. In order to really have a good sounding training program, it needs to be fit to you and your body. And the only way to really know you and your body is obviously with time and experience, but with also understanding what's happening from a molecular level. So going and getting a blood test, going and getting maybe a microbiome test for females, I really would suggest looking at any type of hormonal test. We know that training dips and peaks in response to our menstrual cycle. So training around that, training around your hormones is going to be really key as well. Oh, yes. Now you're absolutely talking my language. So neurology is not one size fits all. Sounds like a huge misconception that a lot of coaches and athletes have had in the past. What are some other common misconceptions people have when it comes to their neurology? I think another misconception is certain drugs, for example, or caffeine. Let's, let, let's look at caffeine. It's a, it's a wonderful drug that a lot of people are addicted to, myself being one included. Um, but things like caffeine, it's like, well, okay, if we look at the starting point of peak performance, I mentioned that sleep. I think sleep is the, you know, the number one key driver to ultimate performance. That means we want to be maximizing our sleep from the moment that we wake up. Things that mitigate sleep, are caffeine. Caffeine has a half-life of 12 hours. So if you're going to have caffeine at midday or past midday, you're really going to be disrupting the REM and non-REM sleep cycles. So that's one thing that I think is a misconception. Another thing is the way that we're training per se. So I put my training programs in for my mother and my father. My mother is 65. My father is 70, obviously has some health consideration to take into place. The way they train is going to be different to somebody who wants to train to compete. And what I think that there's a misconception is around how we should be training. I think we're living in a world that is governed by overtraining. We must do this. We must do that. But really, if you look at the science, to get the maximum benefits for longevity, for heart health, for brain health, you really don't have to be training more than 150 minutes per week. And you really don't need to be training at maximum benefit. In order to train the mitochondria, we only really need to be training in zone two, which is a really easy rate. So I think there's a misconception around how we should be training, what we should be training. That's one misconception. And then obviously what we should be eating. I would love to see people, you know, really exploring this as coaches, really exploring the science behind what we should be eating in order to better our performance. There's a lot more to take into consideration. Um, but what I really love is the amount of at-home testing that's being done. You know, there's, we've got tech now. We've, back when I was a, a triathlete, which makes me sound old, uh, <laughs> but back when I was a triathlete, we didn't have heart rate variability to show, hey, Louisa, you're not going to be able to produce good results today because your HRV is low. We didn't have sleep metrics. I wasn't able to, you know, look at my sleep data. I just had to go by what I felt. So I love the tech side of things. I love the ability that we can take at-home testing. You know, I wear a CGM right now, a continuous glucose monitor. There's so many things now to show, hey, this is how you should be training based on your data. 
So if we're, you know, trying to do all of this at home, because I know you mentioned, you know, some of the stuff you can do at home meant this is something I personally really, really want to ask because I, you know, mentally in my training, it's very difficult for me just in every area. So I'm curious, uh, what are some mental fitness exercises that our listeners can put in practice at home to improve their athletic performance? So the first thing that you want to do, if you are at home, you want to go outside. That's the first thing, okay? Whether you've got a balcony or whether you just want to go outside in your yard or on the road, you want to be able to get 20 to 30 minutes of sunlight in your eye, okay? This is going to kickstart your circadian rhythm, the 24-hour clock. You want to kickstart that to be able to tell your body, hey, I'm ready. It basically wakes up your entire system. If you don't do this, you're going to really throw off your entire day. So that's the first start. The second thing is what I do with a lot of my athletes when it comes to neural firing and getting them ready for a game, I get them doing a number of different reaction training drills. And if you look at my Instagram or any of my my posts that I put up, you'll see me training some of my athletes using lights. And you don't have to do this, but if you're at home and you have a tennis ball, a really great thing to really wake up your nervous system is getting the tennis ball putting one hand behind your arm, standing in front of a wall and throwing the tennis ball and seeing how many touches without dropping it, how many touches you can do to the wall in a minute, then changing to the opposite hand. And then once you've got the minute down packed and you haven't dropped the ball, maybe picking one leg up the opposite leg. So you're working the contralateral movements of your brain and body. It's such a simple at-home exercise that can reap massive rewards. Wrote that down. (laughs) Yeah, it's so great. It's amazing. (laughs) Under Armour's Sweat the Details will be back after a short break. Welcome back to Sweat the Details. All right, Louisa. Well, I think it's time we get to shake it out. Um, This is a part of the show. We like to play a little game with our guests. And today's game is called Hot or Cold. It's a this or that game. So Monica and Mm -hmm. I are going to take turns asking you if you prefer this or that, just about things like your lifestyle, athletic routines, preferences, and then you're just going to answer as quick as you can. Sound good? Okay. Okay. I'm scared. (laughs) It's okay. Okay. Just deep breaths. Ready? Okay, I'll go. Okay, I'll go first. Going for a run in Sydney or New York? Sydney. Oh, why Sydney? So Sydney is much more easier and picturesque to run. Uh, When you're running in New York City, I live right in the middle of Manhattan. (laughs) I'm having to dodge a lot of things. um, And so it just makes it a lot harder to run around the city. Albeit there are some nice running tracks on the East River, not the West Side Highway. However, if I had to choose, it would definitely be the East Coast of Australia, where you can run through Bondi, run through Coogee, and it's just beautiful. Okay, I'm I'm convinced now. Sounds like a dream. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm ready to go. Cold brew or hot coffee? Hot coffee. Early bird or night owl? Early bird. Training in the gym or outdoors? Outdoors. Why the outdoors? Okay, I'm going to be really honest. Okay, I've probably never actually openly admitted this anywhere. I hate training in a gym. It takes so much of my mental uh, fortitude and motivation to get me to a gym. I think it's because I grew up and I never trained in a gym. Uh, 
as a triathlete, we just trained in the water on a bike and we just ran. So now that I actually have to go to the gym, I hate it. So I try and do everything I can. Yeah, it's terrible. I've, I might hire a personal trainer to actually come and get me and take me down there. I still do it, but I just want to be open and transparent. I, it, it upsets me. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. That's, that's (laughs) relatable. It's very relatable. Yeah. (laughs) Cycling or swimming? Swimming. Summer or winter? Oh, summer. All right. (laughs) Very nice. Oh, that was fun. Got to know a little bit more about you. Mm. (laughs) Louisa, you are a fountain of knowledge and it is, is so refreshing to hear you speak about just brain function, athleticism and sleep, how we can really maximize things that we are overlooking in today's society. So we want to thank you so much for tuning in with us and giving us this great talk. Can you let us know how we can find you? Guys, thank you so much for having me. Yes, definitely. I'm very active on Instagram and on Twitter. So on Twitter, I'm Louisa Nicola. On Instagram, I'm the Diamond Boss. So you can find me on both of those platforms. And if you want to know more about the brain, you can uh, you can listen to my podcast as well. That is uh, just over 200 episodes dedicated to the brain. And that's called The Neuro Experience. Hey, thank you so much, Louisa. Awesome. Thanks, guys. I am absolutely taken aback by everything that Louisa said. For someone to be so versed and educated in neuroscience and to still say that one of the basic principles that we should lean on is creating Mm -hmm. goals. I really appreciated that. What did you enjoy the most, Meg? I mean, my notes are like everything (laughs) according to to what I wrote down. I am going to do the tennis ball thing that she did mention. Um, Cause I'm, you know, the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be trying to work on my mental fitness instead of physical fitness. And so that's something I could actually do to have her information reinforced that, oh my gosh, you could do some cold training. You can, mm-hmm. you know, you can look at your goals differently and be kinder to yourself in that regard. That's really bringing me back to a motivation too. I really feel like it was definitely fate for both of us. And that's what happens when we get these, you know, educated purposeful, powerful women in our conversations and, you know, in our corner. So I'm definitely feeling really fulfilled from this conversation and very inspired. I'm kind of inspired to work out in a cold weather, (laughs) right? I'm never excited for that. I've only done it maybe a handful of times and it's always been very excruciating for me. So I don't know if maybe I just need to take her tips. I mean, obviously the, the layers probably was something I've never been good at. I'm from the South. We're not used to layers. So yeah, Yeah. I think I, I don't know. Have you, do you work out in cold weather ever? Do you enjoy it? Back when I was a runner, I was running in shorts outside, but as long as I had gloves and like an ear muff or a hat, or something, I was good. And that, you know, that was like, you know, 2012 through 2015, I was pretty actively running and we got back to it because of the stay at home order. And, you know, that's what the pandemic brought back into our lives is okay. We really need to rely on getting some time outside. And so now I can step into it and I'm sure you can too, really feeling motivated to know that it's extra beneficial if we do it the right way. Yeah. I might wait a little bit to do an ice bath, but I may, I I don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon, but 
but it's good to know, you know, the, the benefits of it. So this was such an awesome conversation. I'm, I'm taking away so many things today. Me too. Thank you so much for joining us, FitFam. If you like what you heard on the show, subscribe for free or follow the show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review. Until next time, stay inspired, stay motivated, and remember to always sweat the details. Bye. Bye. If you liked what you heard on the show, subscribe for free or follow the show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review. Sweat the Details is a collaboration with Under Armour and iHeartRadio. Our show is hosted by me, Monica Jones. And me, Meg Boggs. Our executive producers are Jess Schreibstein, Giselle Lewis-Archbald, Molly Sosha, and Maya Cole. Our producers are Kelly Antol, Layla Kadrain, Emma Osborne, and Alejandra Arevalo. And our sound editor and engineer is Sarah Gibble-Laska. Keep up the latest news in women's fitness by following Under Armour at Under Armour Women and at Under Armour.